This message is being given on August the 28th of 2014 on Thursday at approximately 428 in the afternoon. Greetings, my name is David Thompson. For any of you that are new and have not heard any of these messages, I just want to make you aware that I am seeking to be led by the Spirit of God to the right chapter on every message I give. And so I do seek a chapter by the casting of Lot before God. And then I share right after a time of meditation and notes on that chapter for no more than a half hour. There is the rare exception where it goes a bit over. What the Holy Spirit would say, I trust God to give me the right words to speak instead of depending on a lot of study and notes. And so I want to speak today in the spirit of prophecy to you. As it says in 1 Peter 4, if any man minister or if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Today I received Luke chapter 10. So first of all, I will read Luke chapter 10. And we will see what the Holy Spirit wants to say. I know he's laid on my heart things even before I receive this chapter. And sometimes I wonder how possibly anything can come out of a long chapter like this. But first I will read Luke chapter 10. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, the harvest truly is great but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways, behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor script nor shoes and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. And into whatsoever city ye enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in the day, in that day for Sodom, than for that city. Woe unto thee, Cherazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and in Zidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Zidon at the judgment than For you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father. For so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are your eyes, which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. And he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and sent, set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he had departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, That showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Better therefore that she help me. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. May God bless the reading of this passage of Scripture as the Spirit of God begins now to speak forth. In the first section of Luke chapter 10, Christ is talking about the harvest. And I think the strongest verse here would be the one that says, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into its harvest. And of course, in this section we have him commissioning the disciples to go forth. And as they go forth, they are given authority through his name to heal the sick and to tell people that the kingdom of God has come near to them. And he gives details saying you don't need to take anything. God will provide your needs. They're put in a position where they have to rely on God for 
provision. In fact, he emphasizes, don't go from house to house asking for support. And he makes it clear that when you enter a house, pray for peace upon that house. But if they reject you, the peace that is on you will that's from God will then return onto yourself, off of them. In fact, if a city rejects you, wipe the very dust off your feet and make it clear to them, the kingdom of God came near you, but you rejected it, basically. That is what he's saying. The real issue here in this first section is that the people have a burden that causes them to be aware of all the multitudes of souls that are in the context of their nation, of their city, their community, and they actually have a genuine burden that impels them to do something about it. In this case, the first thing that is required is prayer, a recognition that God must be the one that brings these souls, not only to have the kingdom of God come near them, but to actually enter into relationship with God, where his kingdom they can partake of and thus be reaped into destiny from a life of meaninglessness. And so the Lord says that we are to pray, recognizing that he is the one that will send the labors. He's the one that will raise up the people that can reap this harvest of souls that we find in the surroundings we're living in and beyond that to others as we're faithful with what is about us in the reaping of the souls that God has created that they might enter their destiny. God doesn't just cause people's lives to be born into this world, to exist, and go through the meaningless cycle of the monotony of working without meaning or destiny and purpose in their lives. There's a harvest. And that harvest comes to a place where there is maturity. But there is always a harvest of people they're coming to the place where they're ripe and open to either receive the gospel or possibly be hardened against the truth when they hear it. There comes a, ploy, a, a valley of decision for every individual as a soul and also corporately for nations and also for the whole world. For it says in Joe, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision when it is describing the end times. And we also know that the Lord clearly describes that the last days will be such that at the end, when the harvest has come to full maturity, the wheat will become very evident from the tares, but it will be God that will separate the wheat from the tares by his angels. I know a man that is very prophetic and had an angelic visitation not too long ago, and the angel of the Lord told him that there's still time, but very little time to reap the harvest. But what's, once the work is done by the Spirit of God through the body of Christ, there will be a final reaping where the angels will actually reap the harvest as well, and then the judgment of God will come. The night comes when no man can work. But now there is still in this hour, more than ever, the urgency as we see the maturation of darkness around us where people are unashamed and unbashful before God and others, flaunting their blasphemies of, of iniquity in the face of God. And we see more and more that there's parades of defiance before God with decadent immorality and perversion that obviously 
even in the natural observation, is very destructive to society because it destroys the family unit upon which society becomes stable and productive and wholesome. But people are coming to a place of decision where either they are going to serve their own immediacies of fulfillment and gratification, which is a delusion because it is not lasting and it always leaves a soul empty with a state that is like a black hole in outer space where they are grasping and grasping to try to fill the void of emptiness. And the more they grasp and the more they try to fill it, the more desperate they become. And thus there's, through the process of maturing to the point where they're unashamed in their desperation, seeking fulfillment to manifest absolute evil and neglect of their fellow neighbor. The Lord is wanting us as the body of Christ to recognize also his plan for bringing in the harvest. And the harvest also has a purpose. The harvest, of course, means that there is in the natural for people the ability to have sustenance and wholesomeness in their lives and to dwell in a place of habitation that is fulfilling individually and corporately. And God's purpose in the harvest is also that he brings forth a corporate bride. Most of us that are believers, followers of Christ, are very familiar with passages such as the one that says that we are being built together as living stones in order to form a habitation for God through his spirit. In other words, his spirit will inhabit us as living stones. And so God's purpose is to have habitation with his creation in marriage as a corporate bride from very diverse backgrounds. The question is, what stops things coming to maturation where they can be reaped with great fruitfulness and blessing unto God, ultimately in the understanding of habitation, as I mentioned, the corporate body of Christ. Even as wheat grows, even as a seed grows, it is going through a process. How does that process start that brings that seed to the place where it is the corn that is glowing in the sun, where the shuck has fallen off and it's ready to be enjoyed and to provide habitation, dwelling, the process starts when the shell of that seed is broken open, as Christ said, except a corn of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. The seed represents also those that do not know God. The shell represents those that are in that state where the latent potential of their destiny has not come to be recognized or realized. They don't even know why they're existing. They're just in the world going through maybe a religious ritual or whatever it is. But there comes a point where God allows the vacuum that they sense inside because there's nothing 
that's meaningful in their lives. They don't sense that they have destiny or anything else. He allows it to come to the point where the pressure becomes strong enough that there is no comfort or satisfaction in their present state so that that pressure will cause a birthing out into a greater and whole new realm. And this is the understanding of spiritual rebirth that Christ described in John chapter 3. In the symbol of the seed, before it has realized destiny and potential, when it's in its latent state, the circumstances of pressure in one's life represent the earth and the soil that is working against that outward shell of hardness. This shell represents this state of being that is like a black hole in outer space. It's a state of self-worship, of independence from God. It can be represented also by a fist. It is the capacity in our being to worship, being focused to worship our own consciousness. It is a state of pride. It is a state where we are trusting totally in oneself and are totally unaware of the reality of the Creator, except that there may be very amazing intellectual understandings, but without the heart, it is merely that and nothing more. But there comes a point where there is not only these pressures from circumstances that seem so empty, like the prodigal son, but there's also the light of the sun that is against that shell, causing heat with the earth. Again, causing the shell to come to a place where it can be broken open. And then there's the water that softens the shell. And eventually there comes a point where there's breakthrough. And that shell is exposed to the light and to the moisture, and it begins to sprout and bring forth life. And this speaks also of being born anew or being brought forth anew of the Spirit of God. How does that happen? Well, certainly there is the light of truth in all that they observe around them. They see the hypocrisy of people that are merely religious. They see the deception in their own heart like the prodigal son. And they come to the point where they're so disillusioned with themselves and all the counterfeit things that they've been exposed to and mere religiosity that all they want is what's real. All they want is what's really trustworthy and not deceptive. And so they cry out and they say, Oh God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. I don't want this religiosity I'm in. Whether, whatever background of religion it is in, from, whether it's the background of it, the religion of atheism, of humanism, of a philosophical religion that believes in trying to get rid of ego through meditation so that you just refine your ego beyond the comprehension of self so that you become kind of depersonalized and you have a vague and meaningless understanding of destiny that's really depressing really whatever it is whether it's mere Christianity that's not reality in a mere ritualistic shell without the reality or whatever or some monotheistic belief that is demanding and has no recognition of goodness that is in God. God is the very source of goodness. And it's when people come to this point that they cry out and are open that the light comes in and the Spirit of God comes in. And I've often described it, but it's important to understand what brings forth that seed to new life. It is a choice of openness towards what is ultimately trustworthy, what is ultimately real. And that can only be found 
in a right perception of God. And so there is a choice to recognize God from the heart for who he truly is. And all the evidence in creation around and the preaching of the word of God from those that know God and so on all brings them to this point where there's a final, there's a choice to recognize what? First, that God is love and that his love is absolutely pure. It has integrity. It is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to it. In other words, this is the holiness of God, the defensive aspect of his love. And it is in coming to realize this, and it is only realized because you recognize nothing else would be ultimately trustworthy, but a God who has this quality in his being, only such a quality could possibly be able to contain unlimited power and life without being corrupted by it. And therefore, because it is not corrupt, it is good. But it's not merely the recognition of the holiness of God. It is the recognition that out of such holiness of God, there is the foundation for God to, in his love to also be totally able to express himself and creativity that is without corruption and love that it can be fully expressed without corruption is ultimately manifested in the fact that he can provide mercy. And this is in the recognition that his love must be so ultimately perfect and pure that without the violation of the integrity of this love, he has the moral capacity in his love to actually be able to take judgment upon himself so that you can receive forgiveness. There is the recognition that God is the source of forgiveness because his being is so totally pure and perfect. And as such, people come to recognize that only God could be a perfect atoning sacrifice. And I briefly mention this in many of my messages, that there are many scriptures, and I will point them out eventually. They certainly are in my book that I'm writing on the fear of God. There are many scriptures that make it clear that God is the only source of forgiveness. And that also make it clear in the Old Testament that only the, the animal sacrifices can only cleanse the physical realm to allow God's presence to dwell with them. But that ultimately forgiveness is in God. And that infers very clearly that since he's the source of forgiveness, he also could only be a perfect atoning sacrifice that could absorb judgment for us. And that is very clearly implied in various scriptures, such as ones that say, what shall I give for the sin of my soul? Shall I give the fruit of my womb or even my own body? No, none of these things are sufficient. The recognition that only God could be a perfect atoning sacrifice. Thus we see the writings in the time of Christ of various people that believed, including, I'm sure, the Pharisees and others, that there was the suffering Messiah that would be coming as well as the reigning Messiah. They didn't recognize that he would be one and the same. I say all of this to bring out a truth here in the reaping of the harvest. That genuine rebirth comes out of the fear of God. It is not some mere mental assent. It is a deep breaking of that self-worshipping state of being that is like this seed that is a hard shell. When you see who God is, that he is totally holy, and, and that you deserve judgment apart from his mercy, you recognize that your, your spirit can no longer worship your soul. Worship yourself. And as a result, pride breaks like a hard shell. And there's a deep cry in the heart that circumcises the heart, that breaks up the hardness of the shell of one's heart. It is also likened onto the spin of electrons around the nucleus of an atom that form a hard shell. It is the recognition of that ultimate negative, which is, in the, for illustration's sake, the holiness of God and the ultimate positive that comes out of that which is the mercy and the favor of God to those that repent and receive his mercy, which was ultimately revealed in the center of history in the fact that God suffered more than you, a mere creature, 
and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, so that you could be reconciled to God and be part of his corporate bride that he will inhabit and rule with in realms of ever-enlarging creativity and fulfillment that goes on without end forever and ever. This is the ultimate destiny that God seeks and for which he has created and planted the seeds that have become a harvest that is ready to be reaped. And of course, I've also illustrated it in the sprouting of the seed. And I could go into great detail as I have in some of my messages on the understanding of this, but I will forbear to go into anything more than that right now. I want to point this out because God is wanting in this hour to bring in a harvest that is not merely souls being saved. The harvest is not left once it's reaped to rot. It is processed and brought into ultimate purpose, which is for habitation and dwelling that is everlasting. And the Lord is wanting us to see what is required for him to have these living stones come together so that his spirit can come down and inhabit his corporate house, his corporate bride. Because when the presence of God can come down in a corporate gathering of people, in the fullness of his glory, there will be the greater works. There will be the, those things that are evident in this passage of Scripture that come with authority. It is interesting that in this passage of Scripture, even before Christ died on the cross, they were preaching the gospel. For it says in verse 9, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Remember that even Paul the Apostle in Galatians made it clear that the gospel was from the very beginning. He talked about Abraham and the gospel. We see Enoch walked with God. Even from the time of Adam and Eve, there was restored fellowship with God because that gospel was there. There was the clear understanding as I've just described, that there is one God and that he alone is the source of forgiveness and that he can assure forgiveness because within him is the moral capacity to forgive because of the perfection of his love and mercy out of the holiness of God. And that was realized, I believe. And even if they didn't see it fully, they sensed it deep inside their being by revelation. If they didn't fully intellectualize it, but many of them, I'm sure, even saw it intellectually, and certainly they saw it by revelation, such as King David and many others. And they had such a close relationship with God that they walked with God. Yes, there's a difference between the time after Christ and before. In the time after Christ, when Christ died, he fully represented our soul and spirit. So then the soul and our spirit could be cleansed, not just the physical body. As a result, the spirit of God did not only dwell with them, but indwelt them because it now could dwell in their soul and spirit. And that is the main difference. And it is also meant that because God could indwell our very soul and spirit, that we had a more in parallel to that indwelling was also the access into the holy of holies as opposed to a mere dwelling with. Christ said, you know him for he dwells with you and shall be in you after the cross. So they knew God before Christ died on the cross because the spirit of God could still dwell with their soul and spirit. And the way I liken it, is to a seed opening up or a hand opening up, representing your spirit. We have the same spirit of faith, speaking of our spirit in a state of faith. It says boasting is excluded by the law of faith. 
when our spirit opens up recognizing and choosing to recognize that God is ultimately trustworthy because of who he is in this holiness out of which springs the mercy of God or the favor and grace of God, the hand opens up because the hand of our spirit, of our soul, represents faith, which is responding to love, and faith works by love, according to Galatians, by the word of God. And so, when the hand opens up, it's in a state of selflessness, and then the spirit of God, which represents another open hand that is totally pure in a state of selflessness, comes against that hand, forming a hand which represents prayer, but also represents a seed when two hands come together in the symbol of prayer. And so it says in 1 John, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And the new divine nature is the opening up of our spirit in the recognition of the being of God in his love, in its integrity, in its transcendence and mercy that receives his mercy and repentance and the dwelling of God's spirit with our spirit, which forms a new nature, which is as a seed that then can begin to mature in a process of abiding in the same way it received God. The word of God says, if you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. It is an ongoing process. Why am I going to sharing all of this? Because I want to give an understanding on what God is wanting to do in these last days to reap the harvest. What is God doing in these last days to reap the harvest? He is wanting to deliver his people from what would limit his dwelling among us. What would stop him from coming down and inhabiting us as living stones that he can dwell in or as his corporate bride? It is very clear in Ephesians that when there is this that happens, it says very clearly this, that ye shall, that we are with all saints able to comprehend, that we are, that we can come to the place of comprehending the height and the depth and the breadth of God's love so that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, when the fullness of God dwells within his people, that is when there is the glory of God that comes down in the greater works. That fullness is individual, but it is also corporate. And it involves coming into a place of genuine conversion, of the genuine fear of God that births genuine faith, genuine belief. The word faith means persuasion in the Greek. Pistis, persuasion, or belief, Similar word, same word used. Same root word used. And this process of initial conversion will allow, as it continues on, a coming together of the living stones into that a unity that allows this to happen. It's like as Watchman E wrote in his book, it's like a glove and the hands working its way in until it finally fits fully in that glove and then that glove has power and it has authority. But here's the problem. It is the spirit of religiosity, it is the spirit of denominationalism that stops this unity from happening, that brings in the fullness of God's purpose which is represented in the reaping of the harvest. People denominate one another. That means they classify one another and they say, well, I recognize that you're a believer and that you believe this way, not exactly the way I believe. So I'll still love you, but, you know, I don't think very highly of you, so... I'll kind of give you the cold shoulder, but I'll still 
wow, you in my church. Or in some cases, there can be, as there has been throughout church history, severe persecution on others. So what happens is that we become merely religious, like as described in the rest of this chapter. The various sections in Luke chapter 10, which I will go into, I suppose, describe a mere religiosity, for example. First, Christ describes the secret of really what is required to reap this harvest as you look in verses 17 to 20, but more particularly in verses 21 to 24. In verses 17 to 20, he says that we are to rejoice not because of the authority that God has given us, but because our names are written in the book of life. We should always be rejoicing that we're his sons and his daughters. We should always be filled with thankfulness that God has redeemed us, filled with thankfulness because we recognize the greatness of God's mercy to us. The secret of always abiding in a place where we don't rejoice in the power that God gives us, but in our relationship with God and that we've received mercy and our names are written in the book of life is in the secret of abiding And that secret is in the fear of God. For the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And to them he will show his covenant, it says. And it also says in the word of God that they that abide under the shadow of the Almighty, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I could go in and explain a lot on this, but it would be too in-depth to go through this chapter. So I just touch on it now, that even in the one true God, which governs beyond the time and space realm as the Father in personage, and governs in the time and space realm as the Son, for the Son is the full expression of the Father in government into the time and space realm, and governs as the Holy Spirit in omnipresence, thus all three dimensions of existence in their ultimate aspect are governed by God because he can be personage in those three ways. But between the personages of God, there is also the secret of abiding oneness, which is in the fear of God. For it says in Isaiah 33, around verse 5 and 6, that the fear of the Lord is his treasure, speaking of the Messiah. And it's too much to go into. But this gospel is the everlasting gospel that it talks about in Revelations chapter 14 that will be preached in the last days. It is from before the earth was created. And it goes on to the eternal future, this gospel. What is this gospel in its essence? It is the recognition of, it is the fear of God that is the secret of abiding in God. That is the secret that keeps us in the place of humility where God can abide in us. That's why the Messiah himself treasures the fear of God because Jesus sees the Father even before the world was created and says, Father, I see how holy you are, how you guard against all destructibility and the glory of it and the glory of who you are, and I see the beauty that comes, the wholeness that comes out of that, that has no corruption in it, and out of that wholeness, the beauty that comes out of that, and I love your beauty, and the beauty of your love, and so, Father, I want to respond with thankfulness to you, because I perceive who you are, and I want to reciprocate. And so I want to go down into a condescension of suffering in order to bring a corporate bride to you, because I love you, my Father. And I want, and I'm hungry, to be enlarged and go into greater and greater enlargement. I'm totally satisfied presently, but I thank you for the thirst that is a thirst that is without thirstiness, because it's totally satisfied, but yet it wants to be enlarged. And so, 
I want to bring a corporate bride to you. And the father says, I love you, son, so much that I want you to be able to go and do this and bring and, and experience the inheritance for yourself of a corporate bride in me. And this is the relationship that God also is wanting in the unity of his people. But what happens is that we become denominational. And I'll give you some practical examples. There's a tendency in human nature to put identity in one another more than in a relationship with God. It, is very, it happens very easily. And I could go into a lot about this. I know that I only have so much time to preach. I mean, look at the revivals that have come and they've gone. What's happened? There's revival and there's blessing that comes out of it. And there's revelation, but then children grow up in that revival and their parents begin to cherish them more and become more involved with them than in their relationship with God or they become so active in the ministry and wanting to serve God that they get carried away with their activities and their gifts from God more than they do in their relationship with God. And then what was once a revelational truth becomes something that becomes enshrined and more intellectual and more something that we must guard. And so we form a hierarchy around it. And then out of that, we're getting all kinds of comfort from all the blessings and material comfort. And we've got this nice hierarchy that forms a nice shell of comfort and fulfillment and Somehow we've lost sight of who God is so that we don't want to be enlarged. And so we end up having a shell form around us of hardness and a hierarchical structure corporately that is enshrined certain truths. And when another brother or sister comes into the congregation that maybe has seen some greater aspect of the similar truth or whatever, we do not want them to become involved in our church lest it results in all kinds of people leaving our church and going with theirs and us being humbled and being seen as falling short. And so we hold on to our pride and we hold on to our security. Let me give you another example. I have noted and observed in various movements that I've been in that churches that claim that they're not denominational often become denominational and I could talk for a long time on this because of experience with with particular groups no time to do it but I want to give you a little bit of an example you go to one there a group experiences some dimension of God's presence like the Quakers in the past and then you got a denomination called the Quakers and all they know to do is quake and then we have another movement where they believe in laughing, and all they do is laugh. What is happening when we see these things happen? Is that instead of there being the individuality of the stones, they have become more homogenous like a bunch of bricks, conform to one another. Because now what they're doing is they're putting their identity in their leader and in one another they fear to be rejected by one another. They fear to not be accepted by one another. And so they conform to one another and violate their, the integrity of the uniqueness of who they are before God because they want to be like the others. Does this mean that we do not strive to be of one heart and of one mouth? No. The Word of God commands us to strive to be of the same mind and of the same heart. And we should always be seeking to be in unity with one another. But it is a unity that is not a counterfeit unity. It is a unity that is built on the balance of truth and love. It says to speak the truth in love. On the one hand, people can be all zealous for truth and have no love. On the other hand, they can have a love that doesn't have integrity and where they just start conforming to one another and putting their identity more in the leader, their identity more in one another. And the next thing you know, if you're not a person that laughs, well, you're out. Or if you're not a person that quakes, well, then you're out because we're part of the Quaker denomination and you're part of the laughing denomination. Another group is part of another one. And they're not fully received. And so what happens is 
there is not the genuine fear of God because there isn't the awareness of their relationship with God. They're not in that secret place where they're learning to be reciprocative of the integrity of God's love so that they have integrity with God and with one another and respect with God and one another. And there's not the reciprocation of the greatness of God's goodness, of his mercy. They tend to get like Cain, where God becomes distant and afar off. Their heart becomes hard. They form a shell. Christ commanded us to receive one another as he received us. Paul the Apostle said, that God has given more abundant honor unto the part that lacks, that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. There's a tendency of control that happens when people put leadership on the pedestal and the leadership lets it happen. And when people put their relationships with each other ahead of God, and so now you have a hierarchical shell that has limited the fullness of God's purpose. God is calling us as his people to repent before him. Being anything but fully who he's called us to be, it doesn't mean that we don't laugh. It doesn't mean that God can't move in one that laughs. And that we should, because we don't laugh and because we're not made that way, judge them. No. We should always be seeking to be one with our brothers, but not without the integrity of our relationship with God and with one another. And so when I see my brother and I don't like the way he behaves and laughing, I don't cut him off. I choose to love him. And when we see another brother or sister that's in the rough, God give us the grace to see how great God's mercy is to us to see how great his holiness is and the wholeness that comes out of that holiness and the beauty that comes out of that holiness that is manifested in his mercy and his goodness so that we can look at those people that are in the rough and have discernment to see through their roughness and want to wash their feet with the word of God to humble ourselves before them even if they think they're really in the right and are a bit rough. When we do that, we will win our brother and sister and we will come into a unity that is not a counterfeit unity of a bunch of stones that all look the same, that have lost their identity and relationship with God. We will be a beautiful mosaic of what God's purpose is that will allow him to come down and inhabit us as living stones that he can dwell amidst with the greater works. If we do not know what it is to mourn before God and to weep and to humble ourselves over the awareness of how holy he is and how beautiful he is, and out of that great humility, if we don't know what it is to learn to wait on him and be still, and out of that great humility, not speak with presumption before him, but out of utter reverence, we will never have that reverence and respect for the uniqueness in one another that allows for diversity and releases one another without the spirit of control. God's given more abundant honor unto the power, the part that lacks, when there isn't control in the leadership that says, no, you can't share, you can't move in the gifts. I don't want you to be released in your uniqueness. But God allows the one that is not very attractive to have more abundant honor so that those that tend to be looked up to are humbled, so that pride is dealt with. And then the word of God says that when that happens, according to Proverbs, contention comes by pride. So pride is defeated and division is defeated and denominationalism is conquered when we learn to wash one another's feet. The spirit of adultery in the church is because of love for the things that are not of the Father. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof. 
but he that does the will of God abides forever. So it is of the world. When the church is filled with things that harden their heart, because they become occupied with the gifts that God has given more than the giver. And the next thing you know, they're caught up with all the gods of amusement in this world. And they're more interested in spending time watching games, being involved in things that are idle when the word of God commands us to redeem the time. So there's a hardness. There's a love for the world and even a love for the world in identity with one another more than with God. And so this is the spirit of adultery for, with the world that causes marriages to break apart because of the hardness of heart. I will never forget the woman that told me how her marriage was spared. She was upset with her husband. She was making plans to leave him and divorce him. And God challenged her to go to him and to wash his feet with a towel. And she kept resisting, but she finally broke down and did it. And when she did it, he said, no, no, don't do it. And then he broke down in tears and she broke down in tears. And they were reconciled and the hardness of their heart was broken. And their marriage has been good for 25 years because the spirit of adultery was broken between them. And God is calling us to come back to the fear of God. That the spirit of adultery in the church would be broken so that he can have us come into a place where his glory can come in our midst. Because we've learned to be genuine, to not be presumptuous in his presence with some giddy, shallow thing that isn't of him. When you really love God, he's precious to you. You don't treat him as common. Doesn't mean that there isn't liberty. What it means that out of the great humility will ascend great joy and adulation and praise. But we need both. Israel had the solemn assemblies and they had the assemblies of jubilation. If you look at the underground church in China, which I have seen in worship, you will see both. You'll see them weeping with great brokenness and tears and prayer in the caves. And you'll also see them filled with great jubilation and praise. It is time for all the things that are crooked and rough places to go and the valleys to be raised up and the mountains to be brought down that the glory of God would come down in your community so that you can conquer it for God so that the harvest can be reaped before judgment comes upon the nation of Canada, comes upon the United States and around the world. This is God's strategy for the last day. It is that there be beachheads of prayer out of the fear of God, of unity out of the fear of God that bring his glory down until the greater works are manifested in us individually and corporately. Will we have the hunger and the thirst or will we let the loves of this world quench our thirst? The ones that overcome are those that are thirsty, it mentions in Revelations 21. Whoever is thirsty, come and let him drink freely of the water of life. And the verse before that says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Brothers and sisters, I cannot go through the rest of this passage, but it is very clear in this passage that there's an overarching theme. And the Lord makes it clear that what he's pleased with are those that are like children. And that's in verses 21 to 24. And so I go in this chapter to verse 21 to 24, and it says, In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the rise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. God wants us to be like little children. And the psalm that is related to this is in Psalm 131, 1 to 3. And we'll just briefly turn to that psalm and look at it. That's Psalm 131, 1 to 3. Takes a minute to get there. A few, a few seconds, I should say. Psalm 131, 1 to 3. Only three verses in the psalm. But it is the secret that we need to enter into. And it says this, A song of degrees of David, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in matter, great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child is weaned of his mother. 
My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth. And so we see in this chapter the relationship in relation to the passage I read in Luke chapter 10, around verse, again, we'll go to that verse here. Chapter 10, verse 21 to 24 where the Lord rejoices that he brings revelation to those that are babes in his sight. To come to a place where we're not filled with pride and we're like a child sucking from the presence of God's goodness, like a child sucking from its mother's breast, is to have the fear of God and to be exercised in it to the place of genuine humility that takes away all of our own self-initiations of trying to make things happen for God out of a presumptuousness because we're not in awe of him and seeing how precious he is. Those that see God as really precious do not treat him as common. And so out of that comes revelation and it's very clearly also explained in the next verse, all things are delivered to me of my father and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. So Jesus Christ reveals who God the Father is to us. And in another verse it says, everyone that has been taught and learned of the Father shall come unto the Son. So it works both ways. And that revelation comes out of the exercise of choosing to perceive who God is, choosing to fear God, and choosing out of that awareness and that awe to be humbled before him and humbled and to circumcise our hearts that we may enter in to that which is sown of God rather than of ourselves. Enter into the Sabbath rather than our own self-initiations. For the word Sabbath means cessation, which is implying cessation of our own initiations, which are, is the carving of our own ways and our own image of God to justify our own ways. May God help us. And I'm praying also that you would recognize also Isaiah 28, and I can't for time, share much on it, except that there it describes the same relationship of a child. Maybe I'll just briefly read those verses and you'll see the connection in Isaiah 28. And then because this has been a long message, I must close very soon. Isaiah 28, starting, I'm going to go down to around verse 12. And it says this here. It says, whom, in verse 9, whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Knowledge and doctrine here is talking about experiential knowledge, and doctrine is the writing of what comes out of Revelation. Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. This is speaking of the psalm that I read that we are to be like this before God. When that's the case, we can partake of the word of God and there is revelation. So it says, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith we may cause the weary to rest. And this is a fresh, the refreshing yet they would not hear. There are those that are becoming merely religious. They don't like it when people speak in tongues. Though it's clearly prophesied here that it would happen. It's not speaking of a foreign army. This is speaking of something that's refreshing. Only tongues edifies. In regards to the context here, this is obviously about tongues. But the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken, snared and taken. So we either can become like a child that can be receptive to the true word of God, or we can let that true word of God become a mere ritual of performance of even spending time in it. And all it does is harden our heart more and more so that we even try to make proselytes like the Pharisees and they become twofold more the child of hell than the one that is trying to proselyte them. 
This is what God is wanting to say in this passage of Scripture that he's wanting to do for the end time harvest is to bring us into such a relationship with him that we can see his glory and can't be silent about it. And it's oh for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. When you see the holiness of God and the wholeness that comes out of it, of which, out of which springs the beauty of the Lord. And when you're in love with your lover, you want to speak and you can't put it in words. And it comes out in beautiful creativity of expression of love in, the, in prophecy and songs and in the gifts. And God is asking his people to repent of control and let, the, let his spirit blow upon the spices of his garden that the gifts may come forth and he may, able to, may be able to come down and bring forth his bride. <clears throat> I could go on, I'll only mention that the last verses 38 to 42 are talking about Martha being cumbered about by busyness as opposed to Mary waiting at his feet. And it is again what happens like it did to the church of Ephesus, where we become occupied with activity, but our heart has become hardened with mere religiosity and busyness so that we have a comfortable shell that doesn't let us reach out to the Samaritan. We're too comfortable. We don't want to get out of our comfort zone. But we want to be like Christ that was willing to go out of his comfort zone for us to be enlarged in a greater relationship with God. We don't want to be cumbered about with the busyness of religious activity, but to be like Mary, waiting at the feet of the Lord, learning to break our alabaster box, representing even the things that are most precious to us, knowing that we can trust God to raise them up, like Abraham did with Isaac. If we are willing to, and we still want to hold down onto our doctrine, like represented in Abraham not willing to sacrifice Isaac, then there won't be resurrection. But if we are willing to recognize that God is the source of the gifts that we've given us, he's given us, and to break up the hardness of our heart and thankfulness for those gifts and surrender them to the Lord, then the Lord will bring resurrection and he'll bring unity. Thank you for listening to this message. I appreciate your support and prayers and pray that you would stand with me and others that God is raising up with the vision for his purpose in the very last days of his corporate bride. Thank you.